Okay, we're uh, in the season of Lent, and in, in this season, Lent in Latin is the word for spring, and uh, we're treating this season as, as a time to do what we do in the spring, uh, that is spring cleaning. And uh, we can also do that spiritually, uh, these 40 days leading up to Easter as we prepare for that, to just... Uh, look in the recesses of our lives and uh, the nooks and crannies um, where things have built up, where things uh, need to be thrown out, and uh, let's just take hold of this crossroads and uh, do the spring cleaning that, that, that's necessary, the repentance as we prepare our hearts for Good Friday and Easter. Also, we're looking at the I Am statements that Jesus makes in John's gospel. We're going to be looking at two this morning because they're in the same metaphor. Um, but there'll probably also be a part two to this. So if you feel like I didn't cover everything or I left a lot out, um, there will be a part two. But let's turn our Bibles to John chapter 10. This is found on page 870 if you have a Bible like mine. We love to stand for the reading of God's word, so let's do that right now. And this is Jesus talking. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The only one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own. He goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. And they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this parable, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus, knowing this, said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and they will go out and they will find pasture. But the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is God's word. You can be seated. Now, the context in which Jesus says this is, is pretty amazing, and I don't think we oftentimes think about the actual context. We, we look at the words of Jesus, and we make sense of them. Um, but he, man, all I have to say <laughs> is John has given us quite a day in the life of Jesus. I mean, one little window into one day. And Jesus could pick his spots to say the most amazing things about himself. So Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples, with Jews from all over the world, 
Because this happens during uh, the Jewish holiday that we call Tabernacles. It's an eight-day holiday. It's the last feast of the year. It's a holiday in which God instructed all Jews to be present. So according to the historian Josephus, literally millions of Jews uh, would fill a city uh, like Jerusalem, which is much like the size of Grand Rapids. And imagine Grand Rapids all of a sudden having two to three million people uh, descending upon it. Uh, that, that's what's going on for this feast. And this is the feast where they celebrate when their forefathers lived in the desert in tents for 40 years with God pitching his tent in the middle of their tents. So everyone is instructed to have their tent. So Jerusalem and the hillsides uh, surrounding Jerusalem, you, you would just see all of these tents everywhere. It was a huge camping out party, packed with people. This is the feast also that celebrates the grape harvest. Grape in the ancient world is vino. It's, it's wine. Um, in fact, Listen to what God's instruction to Israel for this feast is in Deuteronomy 14, verse 26. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice. I mean, this, this is a party. God instructs them to party. In another place, he says, um, for this whole week, I want joy. Just be happy before me. And he even says, wave palm branches. And so, I mean, this thing got out of control. It's a big tailgate party for a whole week. Maybe we should do that. Now, the eighth day of this thing, the last day, is called Hoshanah Rabbah, which is the last and greatest day of the feast. And in Jesus' day, of course, everyone would pack into the temple. Uh, the temple, the building itself, was on a platform. Uh, the platform was this courtyard that was three football fields by five football fields. That is a lot of space for a lot of people. If you couldn't get a seat there, then you would try to line the streets in the old city, of the city of David, which already by Jesus' day was, was considered the old city, uh, because the highlight of the day was when the high priest would start in the temple with an empty pitcher and walk down the streets through the city of David down to a pool called Siloam, where all of Israel's kings were anointed, and that water was spring water, it was living water, and he'd fill that pitcher with living water. Living water represented God in his presence, and he would march that uh, pitcher back up through the streets and to the temple with the whole city singing Hoshana, waving palm branches. I mean, it, it must have just been bedlam. And He'd get inside the temple courts, come to the altar. He'd raise that pitcher in the air, and he'd wait for silence. And when he finally got the silence, he would pour that living water on the altar. And John's gospel says, on the last and greatest day of this feast, the Hoshana Rabbah, Jesus shouted with all his might, 
I am living water. Come to me and drink. You know how to pick his spots. And this day is just getting started for Jesus because then later in the day, the religious leaders come to him and challenge him like, Jesus, who are you? On what basis can you say such things? And Jesus just triggers them a little bit more. He says, I'm the light of the world. I mean, that doesn't mean much to us because we don't always know the metaphors, but hopefully after Dan Mike uh, spoke, um, I mean, God is light. He is the light of the world. It's Jesus saying, I'm God. And if that's not enough, the sparring ends with Jesus saying, oh, and before Abraham was, I am. I think that might be the most bold I am statement in the whole text. And we don't always get what Jesus is saying. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He said before Abraham was, I am. That is him taking on the very name that God gave Moses when Moses encountered God for the first time. And Moses asked God, God, who are you? And God says, my name is I am. That is my name. He just took God's name. You know what they did? Does anybody know? They picked up stones to stone him. And the day still isn't done. By the way, C.S. Lewis is so right when he says, Jesus is either a liar a lunatic, a crazy person? Or he truly is the Lord? You can't put him in another bucket because of the things he says about himself. He's either a liar, he's either a crazy person, or he really is who he says he is, the Lord. So as he's leaving the temple now, he sees a young man who is born blind. In fact, his disciples ask, as they look at this man born blind, uh, who sinned? Did this man sin, causing the blindness, or did his parents sin? And their question actually reflects the thinking of that day that all physical ailments were the result of personal sin. He says, no, 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 no. That blindness is so that you can see the glory and power of God. And then he spits into the ground and with his finger makes some clay and he takes that clay and he puts it on the blind man's eyes and then he tells that man, go walk the same route that that high priest took today through the city of David, down that road, to that same pool, the pool of Siloam, and you'll be healed when you wash. That's a long walk. Sometimes I walk that with our groups just so they can appreciate how far a walk that is. And why do I do that? This, this man's blind. That whole long walk 
to the pool of Siloam. Can you, sir, am I going the right way? Can someone help me? Can someone get me to the pool of Siloam? That whole walk is a walk of faith and trust. And he's healed. And then that miracle spreads like wildfire through all the people that are there. It gets to the religious leaders. The religious leaders freak out um, because this blind man is someone that they would have seen every day begging in the temple. And they knew that he was blind since he was born. And so they find the man. They interrogate the man. They say, who did this? The blind man says, a man named Jesus. He put mud on my eyes and he told me to go down to Siloam and wash. And I washed and... (laughs) I see. And distrusting this narrative, then they send for his parents and they ask, is this your son? Uh, Was he really born blind? And his parents' answer to both those questions are yes and yes. And then they ask him, "Well, well, how is it that he sees then? And now the parents are scared to give the wrong answer to these religious authorities. So they say, well, he's an adult, why don't you ask him? Great answer, right? So they find this blind man again, who's no longer blind, and they interrogate him all over again. They say, son, we're gonna give you another chance. This Jesus is a sinner. Give glory to God. Tell us that God healed you. Not some sinner. And I love his answer. He says, what can I say? I was blind, but because of Jesus, now I see. And of course, these Pharisees still aren't done. They have to know how. Well, how, 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 did, Jesus, how did Jesus do this? And <laughs> I love his answer. Now he's getting a bit sarcastic with these guys. Um, he says, you know, I already told you that, but it sounds like you want to hear it again so that you can become a disciple of his too. Is that what's going on here? <laughs> and that, of course, infuriates them. They say, disciple? You're a disciple? We're disciples of Moses. But this Jesus, who is he? Who did he study under? Who gave him this authority? And then the young man in complete bewilderment, pushing their buttons again, says, how do you guys not know where this Jesus came from? I was blind, but now I see. And now they've had enough of it, the Pharisees, and they they say, how dare you lecture us You're nothing but a sinner. Your blindness proves that. And then they excommunicate him. Bye-bye. You're gone. You no longer belong. There's the door. You're out. This, of course, all gets back to Jesus. He finds the man. Now, remember, this man has never seen Jesus. He's never seen him. So look at how John 9 ends. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, that they had excommunicated him, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. I think he's already starting to wonder. And Jesus said, now you have seen him. In fact, the one speaking that who is the one 
He is the one who is speaking with you right now. And look at this man. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, the the justice that I have come to bring to this world is that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? (laughs) These guys are crazy. And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. He just turned that whole thing at the very beginning. Is this man a sinner because he's blind? Jesus turns it on his head and says, no, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. You claim to see, that's what makes you a sinner. Very interesting. But John 10 then is commentary on this event that happens in John 9. And Jesus then gives the Pharisees a parable to make sense of all this. And it's a parable about a shepherd. Now, shepherds in that world were incredibly prevalent. It was just something you saw every single day, but it's not something that we maybe have ever seen. We know about shepherds, but not many of us have actually seen a shepherd. Now, I'll say this. Of all the things that I see when I go to Israel, there is nothing that moves me that is more profound than when I see a shepherd with their sheep. Let me show you a picture of this. Look at that. And God says, okay, you know what a leader is? A leader is a shepherd. A leader is someone who has followability. And God, of course, the the Psalms and the prophets say God is the ultimate shepherd. That to me is one of the most profound pictures about who God is. I've looked at a shepherd with his sheep for countless hours. I I could literally sit on a rock and and, and watch it all day. Um, See, in our world, we, we just put sheep, goats, cows, in, in, in fenced-in areas, but in that world, um, there are no fences. Uh, those sheep, what they have is a shepherd. In fact, this, the sheep stay with the shepherd all day, every day. They can't survive hardly a day without the shepherd. And they follow the shepherd. They go where the shepherd goes. When the shepherd sits, the sheep stay in that place. When he gets up and moves to a different place, they follow. And the shepherd is constantly speaking to them because they're not just following the shepherd, but they're following that shepherd's voice. It's the only voice that the sheep will listen to. In fact, I've been told that if something would happen to the shepherd, the whole flock would have to be butchered because they only know and follow one voice. And that is the voice of their shepherd. 
And so every day, the shepherd and the sheep are together. The shepherd never leaves the sheep. That shepherd knows each sheep. He knows each sheep by name. He names them. He knows each personality, the specific needs. He knows when they're tired. He knows when they're thirsty. He knows when they're hungry. He knows when they're frightened. He knows those sheep. Now, when I studied in Israel, we one time had a, a, a class, a, a field study at a place called Beersheba. Uh, Beersheba is actually uh, where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were Bedouins, uh, did much of uh, their life. And this particular day, there were, there were several shepherds with their flocks, and, and they all descended upon this watering hole uh, kind of at the same time. And all the sheep literally got mixed in with each other. And I'm looking at this and thinking to myself, how are they going to sort this whole thing out? And I looked at the shepherds, and they were all pretty calm and relaxed. They even started just talking to each other. And then to my amazement, one of the shepherds just got up, started walking, walking away. He turns around. He starts calling out almost sometimes in a, in a singing kind of thing, talking, talking, walking away, and one by one, all of his sheep just peeled away from that watering hole, and they followed him just like you saw in the picture. And I literally started to tear up. Because look at verse four, what Jesus says. When he has brought us out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him. Why? Because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize that stranger's voice. But the shepherd's voice, they follow that voice. Do you know his voice? Do you follow that voice? So at night, what do the shepherds do? They, didn't have, they don't have barns in that part of the world. So what they would do is they'd find these, create these enclosed areas just like this. The, these two are all over the land. And every night, the shepherd would just walk right into that enclosed area. All the sheep would follow. If you could show the next slide. Um, so they all get in that area, and then the shepherd sits right in the, in the gateway. The shepherd becomes the door, and that's where that shepherd will sleep the whole night for two reasons. One, that will keep the sheep in the, in the pen, Two, more importantly, he is protecting them from any predators. So not only does the shepherd lay his life down for the sheep throughout the day, every day, but then also every night, he literally lays his life down for the sheep. And Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. 
And see, this is how Jesus, out of the same metaphor, can say he's two different things, that he's the gate and he's the shepherd, because the shepherd at night becomes the gate. The gate is the shepherd's. I'll go back to that blind man. And think about him in light of this sheep shepherd metaphor. He couldn't see Jesus, but he could hear him. He heard the shepherd's voice Son, go wash your eyes in the pool of Siloam. He didn't debate that voice. He didn't question that voice. When he heard that voice, he trusted that voice with his very life. And like a sheep, he followed the shepherd. And the light of the world broke into his darkness. And he could see. And then Jesus says, for justice I have come into the world so that the blind might see and those who see might become blind. And what Jesus is, is saying with this statement is, is quite stunning. <laughs> He's contrasting this, this, this blind man who now sees with the religious leaders who are questioning him. He's essentially saying the spiritual leaders who claim to see, who claim to see God, who claim, claim to see God's uh, word clearly, who claim to see who's in, who's out, who can easily say about Jesus, that's a sinner, who can with authority say to that blind man, you're out. Jesus says, you're blind, even though you claim the authority to see. And this blind man who can't see is the one who does see. And I think we need to like listen to that. Because I think about that blind man as he's walking down to the pool of Siloam and he's, that whole way, I, I wish you could see how far of a walk he had to go. Jesus didn't just like heal him, but he said, get up and walk and trust me. And he trusted him for such a long journey. Listen, he might have been blind that whole way down to the pool of Siloam, but guess what? He could see the moment he got up and walked because he trusted Jesus. He heard that voice, and he trusted that voice with his life. And this is what it means to see. It's not do you go to church. It's not all these things that you do. It's not even the doctrines that you hold on to. And I'm not saying that these things aren't important, but to see is this simple. It's to Hear the voice of the shepherd, and it's to trust that voice and to follow that voice. That's seen. Which means, in this whole metaphor, we, we actually have to acknowledge something that's pretty significant. We're sheep. We're sheep. And if you know anything about sheep, I'll just say this. 
There's many things I could say about sheep. I mean, they're, they're very dumb. But we, we won't even go there. Let's just camp out on the fact that they might be the most dependent creatures in the world. They are totally dependent on the shepherd. They can hardly exist a moment, a day, or days without the care of their shepherd. Do you know how dependent you are? We've been taught our whole life to be independent. In fact, we see that as strength to become as independent as we possibly can and in, in, in one sense, that, that's a path that we all need to go down, and it's something that we all need to learn. We, we all need to learn independence, but even in our independence, we are, we are desperately, desperately dependent on our shepherd. We are desperate, desperate to know that voice. to trust that voice. So when Jesus says, I am the gate, I want us to see what this means. Of course, the obvious is there's only one way uh, for the sheep to get into the fold, and the fold represents God and his presence. Um, it's through that gate, and Jesus is saying, I am that gate, to get into God, to, to, to get into that fold into his presence, it's, it's through me. But I also want you to hear what he's saying to the religious leaders. Look at verse one, he says, verily, verily, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way, he is only a robber. So this whole climbing over the wall, a lot of times I think we, we, we think and we apply that to ourselves as sheep. Um, I can't climb over the wall. I have to go through the gate. But that's, that's not understanding the, the metaphor. Uh, a sheep would never climb over a wall. A sheep won't even think to climb over the wall. A sheep can't climb over the wall. It's not even an option for a sheep. This is not said about the sheep, this climbing over the wall. The climbing over the wall is Jesus addressing the Pharisees. He basically says, you guys are robbers, you're thieves. You guys climb over the wall. Number one, you don't go through me, but more importantly, you come over the wall to steal the sheep. Now listen, before we throw the religious leaders under the bus, I mean, I think that's a very easy thing to do both then and today, um, I being a religious leader in some capacity. Um, a lot of people today want a flock. People want a following. People like to exercise influence and power over other people. Now, the obvious ones today, politicians, writers, artists, the big shots of our world, um, they want us to read what they write, they want us to listen to the things that they say, um, but, but let's just apply this to ourselves. I mean, this has actually become even a part of everyday language. How many followers do you have? How many times you check to see how many followers you have? 
We want a flock. Now, these religious leaders in Jesus' day, there's two categories of religious leaders. And I want you to know, these religious leaders, both categories, they had power, they had status, they had authority through their religious position. You had the priests in the temple, who were much like maybe the Catholic priests today. Uh, They had institutional power. They had institutional status. They had institutional wealth. Lots of it. That's not who Jesus is addressing here. He's addressing the Pharisees. The Pharisees in our text are a lot like pastors today. Through the authority that they claimed as experts of God's word, they would build a following. They would have congregations. They they, they would have little fiefdoms. Now, in one sense, I don't want to say that this is all bad. Um, They had such a high view of God's word. They wanted to know it. They wanted to understand it for for the simple person so they could walk it and pray it and teach it and impart it to others. And I want to be empathetic towards these Pharisees because I, 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 we've talked about this. They, they, they were a response to something. They were birthed out of something pretty massive. This, 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 this cultural phenomena of Greece and then Rome and, and its worldview that started to invade their world, a worldview that was uh, just like our Western culture today, this obsession with self and pleasure and sex and sport and who's the best and the prettiest and the smartest and, and the richest. It, it, it all just started crashing down on them. And the Pharisees are a response to this. And the response was the pursuit of purity, moral purity, sexual purity, purity in every area of life. Is that good? Now, they sought this purity by separating themselves from the world. In fact, that's what Pharisee means. It means to separate. And they wanted to separate themselves so they could be totally devoted to God, totally devoted to God's word, to get that in their hearts so they could know it and walk it and impart it to others. Again, this sounds good. But let me tell you where they went so wrong. As shepherds, they made it so hard for the sheep, God's people, to get to God. And this started with what they called the fence that they put around the Torah. And and, and what this means is is take each command that that they saw there. Uh, So let's just take the command, uh, one day a week you should rest. God says, rest. Lay down your work and rest. They take that one command that God says, and they would come up with a hundred new laws on which everyone had to keep these hundred laws so they could keep that law. And he did this with every law. And over time, it just became such a burden. I mean, even Jesus is accused of working on the Sabbath for spitting in the ground and putting it on the man's eyes. That's work. It just took the life out of everything. And then the laws that that carry the most importance to them, the purity laws in Leviticus. Hey, let's go in our Bibles to Leviticus right now. No, I'll spare you of that. Um, 
But those laws, so many of them are about what's clean and unclean. And what Leviticus essentially teaches, I'll sum it up, um, it, it shows us how a person can become unclean. If you touch anything dead, a person, an animal, even mildew, unclean. If you had diarrhea, PMS, leprosy, athlete's foot, you were unclean. Certain foods were declared unclean. Now, here's the basic principle. Any contact with dirt, disease, decay made someone unclean, made someone unfit for the presence of God. This is not according to the Pharisees. This is according to God's word in Leviticus. Now, I'll admit, it's hard to read these laws. I mean, they almost sound obsessive compulsive to me sometimes. But we're not. I see these same laws every time I go into a public restroom. Think about if someone is sick today. Think about how we respond to germs. Think about how people respond to drinking out of the same cup. Or, hey, Libby and I share the same toothbrush. Is that cool? Great. Clean or unclean? (laughs) Yeah, I could start a food fight right now. Come on, don't leave me hanging. Who else shares a toothbrush with your wife? Look at you guys. Unclean, I'm unclean. Okay, moving on here. (laughs) Hand sanitizers, who brought them in today? I mean, this is what Leviticus is about. If you have to live in close quarters with people in a hot desert... But this is what God is, is, is doing with these laws. They're, they're pictures to us of sin and its effects because what dirt, disease, and decay do to our body, sin does to our heart and our relationship with God. Dirt, disease, decay, it alienates us. I experienced it this week when I went to work out and I got on the treadmill and there were two ladies to my right and to my left on treadmills, and five minutes later, they were both out the door. And I knew why. I smelled. (laughs) I was repulsive, okay? And that's what, think about someone with bad breath. It's repulsive. That's sin. Sin makes us stenchy makes us repulsive. This is how, how God is teaching us. But, but here's where the Pharisees went so wrong with these law, laws. They, they use these laws to say that what's actually wrong is out there. So as long as I stay away from that place and don't touch that or taste or eat that or hang out with those people, I'm pure. And then their strategy for dealing with defilement was all outside in. It was was cleaning the outside of the cup. It was performing. And probably worse than anything else, they used God's word as a weapon, as a weapon to judge other people, to critique other people, to look down on other people, even destroy other people. Jesus is a sinner, and dude, you are out of here. 
and they use it to exalt themselves. Look at us. We're so good. We're so pure. That can't be here, you guys. That can't be here. Because at every turn, they, they shepherded this whole movement that socially excluded sinners, that called people to this Gnostic escape from the world, and this hyper, hyper spirituality that wasn't just obnoxious, it was self-centered, it was full of self-importance, self-righteous, self-exalting, it was dead. It was dead. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 23. Woe to you, and when Jesus says that, that's the English version taking out the edge, it was damn you guys. You teachers of the law, you pastors and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law, pastors, Pharisees, you hypocrites, you're like whitewashed tombs, which look so beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of death. Or how about John 10, verse 10? We see the dichotomy between Jesus and what he's doing and the Pharisees. He says, they, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus came to bring the abundant life what we are participating in is the abundant life. And what's the abundant life? It's not just health, wealth, prosperity, all of that. No, that's our world's de definition of the abundant life. But the, the abundant life that Jesus brought us is, is everything that we experience in Psalm 23 when we can say, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I lack nothing. Because he leads me, he guides me, he protects me, he cares for me, he feeds me. Even when I walk to the valley of the shadow, he is with me. He gives me everything I need in every moment, every situation. That's the abundant life. But these religious leaders have come to steal, kill, and destroy in fact, that's what religion does. It steals, it kills, it destroys, it brings death. And what do I mean by religion? Listen to me on this. Religion is when we make this thing all about us, all about what we do, how we perform, how good we are, how spiritually we can become. It's about our washing, our making ourselves clean. Listen, Jesus and the Pharisees actually both agree on our need to wash. And I'm not just talking about taking a shower. I'm talking about this deep, inherent need to become clean. I've seen this. I've lived in three different contexts now. I've lived in Chicago. I've lived in Indianapolis. I've lived in Grand Rapids. And one of the consistent things that I've seen in every place that I live is how many people still feel this deep sense of shame and defilement. And you'd almost think that our world has, 
has, has moved on from, from this. I mean, this world that's come of age that, that no longer believes in a holy God in sin where, where you can uh, create any idea that you want about God and, and, and you can have and create any morality that you would want and you would think that this lawless, godless thing would, would produce something shameless. That shame would be a thing of the past. Instead, it's made us shameful. Both religious and irreligious people still feel defiled, unclean. And the false promise of religion is that we can actually clean ourselves. This is why so many of us feel the need to prove ourselves, why we can be such perfectionists, why we're such people pleasers, why we're always trying to cover and hide our faults. What we're doing is we're washing. We're desperately trying to make ourselves clean, and this is the problem with religion. We think that we can wash by performing for God. If I do enough good things, if, if I'm spiritual enough, then God will like me, God will accept me. Jesus, though, came to the world, and he first of all says, what's wrong with the world, it's, it's not out there somewhere. Defilement is in here. It's in our heart. And so when the Pharisees talk about this outside-in way of cleaning ourselves, it's, Jesus is saying, no, that'll never get to the source of defilement. And he says, we can't clean ourselves. Here's the bottom line. We're sheep. Sheep can't help themselves. Sheep can't save themselves. Sheep can't wash themselves. And this is precisely why Jesus came to the world to be the good shepherd. To be the shepherd that leads us into the gate and into the pasture. He lived the life that we could never live. And on the cross, the good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. He did it. He took upon himself all of our unclean, all of our defilement, all of our filth, all of our dirt, all of our shame. He became repulsive so that he could take all his clean, all his beauty, all his righteousness and place it on us. That's why Jesus says anyone can walk through my gate. It doesn't matter how dirty you are, how defiled you are, what a mess you've made out of your life. Jesus says, Come to me. He is the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. Are you a sheep today or are you a Pharisee? God, you're so good. God, take this burden off our shoulders. This burden of religion that has weighted down so many people in Grand Rapids. And God replace it with the gospel. A gospel which, which sets us free from ourselves, sets us free from making it about ourselves, and makes it all 
about the shepherd, the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. God, this morning, may we take our eyes off ourselves and may we fix our eyes on Jesus, the good shepherd, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and may we trust you and may we follow you with our very life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.